Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Remember, we are the official podcast of Tennis Canada and members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. You can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. We're also on Instagram, MatchpointCanada. And this week's episode, Mike, you had the privilege of speaking to a former world number five, a seven-time winner on the WTA and also a four-time mixed doubles Grand Slam champion and uh, somewhat recently retired as well, Daniela Hantukova, who had such a, a great and, and lengthy career as well. Yeah, I miss having you there with me, Ben, but uh, the time difference with her in Slovakia and us here obviously conflicted with your, your work schedule that day, but I was happy to speak with her. And um, it's interesting for me because I have spoken with her in the past, both in press conferences at tournaments and one-on-one, and I found for whatever reason, speaking to her for a podcast, I just felt so much more at ease and comfortable, and uh, I was kind of looking back thinking, oh, I wish I could have been so chill back in the day when I was speaking to her in a more formal setting, but I guess that's the advantage of having a podcast is it's a less structured vibe to begin with what we've got, and uh, I think it lent to a pretty nice discussion, and talking about someone who, you know, accomplished quite a bit over the course of her career. She didn't win a slam, but made the semifinals of the 2008 Aussie Open. And uh, and even that that in itself is is further than a lot of players get to go over the course of their careers. And I don't know about you, but what I'll associate Daniela with the most is those two Indian Wells titles in 2002 and then 2007. Uh, And the second one to me being uh, just so impressive to do it twice in a a five-year span um, was uh, was pretty huge, and and she beat some big players along the way as well. Hingis in the finals in '02, and and then Kuznetsova in the '07 final, and and Hingis, I believe, in the in the quarters or, or fourth round of that event too. So uh, a tricky player, one that gave people uh, some some fits at times, and it wasn't through through power or anything like that, but just a real sort of um, overall grasp of the game and a, a beautiful game, as as she's described it herself. And, and a game that has more nuances, perhaps, than some of the players that just go out there and try and, and bash the ball, of course. Yeah, I, I think uh, certainly when I, I think of Daniela Hantukova, not only uh, like beautiful fluid ground strokes, just like a, a great baseline player, but also a tactical player. And uh, I, I think she touches on that a bit in your conversation, uh, which we'll get to shortly, uh, of how the power game in the WTA has, has been amped up. And I'm sure that was an adjustment for her. But you mentioned the two Indian Wells titles being five years apart. Does speak to her longevity in a sense because she had – plenty of success early early on in her career when she was very very young and you go through those kind of trials and tribulations but she bounced right back and proved to be a competitive force on the tour for a number of years um yeah so i i think yeah and in, go doubles, ahead. and in doubles as well uh winning all four uh grand slam mixed doubles uh trophies which is kind of a niche thing but that's still pretty darn cool for sure and uh, she did get close to a, a singles final in 2008 when she was up six love, two love against Ivanovic in the semifinals. And then I believe that was the uh, squeaky shoe incident where uh, uh, Ivanovic's squeaky shoes threw Daniela off and uh, she lost the, the last two sets. But imagine being up, you know, winning the first eight games of your first Grand Slam semifinal thinking, my goodness, everything is, is going so well here. And then, uh, to get a little bit rattled and, and thrown off your game and, and against an opponent who's obviously pretty decent too. So uh, I didn't ask her about the squeaky shoes, but uh, nonetheless, here's the interview with Daniela Hantikova for you to enjoy. 
Today on the podcast, I'm very happy to introduce former top five player on the WTA Tour. She was an Aussie Open semi-finalist in singles, three times a doubles finalist at the Slams, and incredibly enough, winner of all four majors in mixed doubles. In retirement, she's been keeping busy and now has her own podcast that she'll tell us about, no doubt. Daniela Hentikova, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I have to say it's so nice and so much more relaxing to be once again on the other side of the camera and not having to worry about what kind of questions I'm going to ask. I'll bet it is. And, and here I was feeling nervous because I almost got the time wrong for what time we were supposed to interview between here and Slovakia. So I'm glad it all worked out. Um, so I should say, first off, welcome to the podcast world because you are somewhat new at this. So why don't you tell our listeners a bit about the Real DNA podcast and what you're hoping to accomplish with that. Thank you so much. Uh, as you said, I'm, I'm glad to be part of your world as well. And, uh, and just um, seeing how much uh, people enjoy the uh, human interaction between former colleagues, um, you know, coaches, uh, other experts. The podcast has been on my mind for quite a long time, but because I got so busy with my uh, TV career didn't really have time to to really focus so um like okay let's go for it because i felt like it was the right time to do it but i i can i i can relate to you and uh, it's not easy to do these kind of things um when we are distanced from our guests and also having to worry about so many technical aspects it, it wasn't easy at the beginning so i'm glad i got through through that part already it must definitely help you in terms of getting your guests that you can just go through your contact list on your phone of former players and doubles partners and tennis personalities. We've got to work a little bit harder to get our guests, but I would imagine that you've got quite a few that you can go to for your podcast. Yeah, obviously, you know, it's those relationships that I've built over the years. And I've said that when I retired, that the, the thing I take away from tennis and the the part that I enjoy the most is um, all the relationships I I got to build during my career. And that was actually one of the main reasons why I wanted to do it because I feel like uh, when we talk to each other, it's it's literally just having a chat, like we would have over coffee. And I and I thought it would be so nice to be able to share that with with the fans of our sport. So it's been. It's been a beautiful journey and uh, um, the, the conversations we've been having were quite deep. So uh, that's where I really enjoyed when I'm able to bring the fans something maybe different about the players. I was listening to your recent podcast just earlier today with Jim Courier, who was a player that I grew up really idolizing. I've got a picture somewhere at my parents' house of me when I'm 10 years old, getting him to sign a tennis ball for me when he was number one in the world. And since then, I've had the chance several times to interview him, which was really special. Um, you guys were talking about what you miss of uh, Roland Garros and the French Open, and you had mentioned that at each tournament, it's almost like there's certain things, whether it's a smell or a location or something that brings you back there. I think it was crepes and Nutella that you were missing from Paris. Right now, Wimbledon should be just going on, almost wrapping up. What is it from Wimbledon that you're missing, whether it be on the tennis court or otherwise at this time? Um, you know, I think most of the players will relate to that when I say it's actually entering the side every morning, because it's almost like that feeling that you can't believe you are part of something so special. 
there is such an incredible energy around the tournament. And uh, whenever you enter the gates in the mornings, there are still no fans. You come there for your early morning um, practice sessions or the last two day, two years to getting ready for, for my studio work. And it's just so quiet. Everyone's just having coffee and uh, getting ready for the day. And, and you have the time to appreciate and stop for a second and realize you are part of, of history. And, uh, and it's a huge privilege to be part of the tournament in, in any way, whether it's commentating, whether it's playing, coaching, uh, staff members. I mean, I think every single person is very aware of the fact that um, every year we witness something very special there. You made that transition so quickly from your playing career to still going to the events on the tour to commentate. Did you find that to be a difficult transition? You were so close to the competition, but no longer competing. Or did you find it a pretty smooth change from player to media? I have to say it's been very smooth and very enjoyable. I never, ever thought, um, you know, this is what I would uh, end up doing. But at the same time, from the first day, it was actually during Wimbledon when I announced my retirement and I went straight uh, from the press uh, to the studio and do my first day as a commentator. So um, it was a very uh, smooth transition and I started to enjoy it right away. I was very lucky to have a great colleagues around me that helped me at the beginning how to kind of navigate in the new world because even though it's the same sport, it's a to totally different job. And I was maybe a little bit surprised by uh, how hard it is and how demanding the hours are. So I had so much more appreciation right away for the and maybe um, at the beginning was a little bit hard, especially at Wimbledon, that I was so close to the courts and not being able to uh, be playing matches. But at the same time, I knew that was the right time to go. And um, I never really looked back since. And I've been really, really blessed um, to have this new career that um, came kind of uh, quickly and, uh, and still being able to be around the sport I love, um, meeting up with my former colleagues, um, obviously commentating with, with, with my legends, my idols that I've always admired and not being able to work with them, as you mentioned, Jim Career. I mean, you know, being able to commentate with me, uh, with him, it's been a dream come true and, uh, and uh, it's been quite an experience, so I'm very grateful for that. It's interesting to hear you talk about how much work it is on the media side of things because in a way when you're a player you get more rest in a sense because when you're in a tournament you need to be rested for your next match and try and get through your physio afterwards and get back to the hotel and yeah absolutely on the media side which is all I know um, is you're working long hours and long days to prepare and, and get ready of course. Um, what, what are some tips you might have for young reporters, rookie reporters who are starting out who might feel you know, intimidated talking to professional tennis players or, or not sure how to go about it from a player perspective, what was it that put you at ease with a reporter and allowed you to sort of open up with them? That's a very good question. Um, I, th I think uh, being prepared. Um, as a player, you can tell right away if uh, the journalist uh, knows his stuff or her stuff and if they know enough about, about you so that you can give them the respect, it doesn't mean they need to know all your results, but that they know your interests so that there is an easy way to find um, a common subject to talk about. And just being really, really honest, being yourself, you know, doing the work the best you can, but 
at the end of the day, you know, the tennis players are, are just humans like everyone else. And, uh, and most of the time they also enjoy the interviews as long as they are not too long. And, uh, uh, maybe just knowing, I would say, uh, knowing the borders. So let's say after losing a match, you don't want to go in too much into the emotional stuff or just making it easy on the players. And, you know, the, the players are so smart. They are so rich as far as experiences go. So there are so many different subjects you can talk to them about. So, so just being aware that what might hurt them, you would want to stay away from that. Yeah, well said. I wish you would give me that pep talk 10 years ago when I started as a reporter. Um, I never asked no, anything I, I shouldn't, but just developing that comfort level takes a little bit of time, I think, anyways, and like experience, like with anything, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. How much are you missing competing? Do you ever have moments where you're like, oh, I wish I could be back on the court? Uh, like, what do you miss the most from, from being on tour as a player? I have to say, I don't really miss much. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, as I said at the beginning, I'm just so happy with everything that uh, happened to me during my career. I felt like it was the right time to stop. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm super happy with my new life afterwards that honestly, I, there's not much I really miss. Yes, maybe sometimes the competition and when we are just about to have, normally this would be almost the final uh, two days of, uh, of Wimbledon, um, of course, you know, those kind of, that adrenaline being on the court and playing those big matches in front of huge crowds. Yes, I might miss that sometimes, but, but not really. I mean, that's why I said I, I'm so lucky because I still get to be around the sport I love. When I'm there, I play the legends anyway, so I play a little bit of this. Oh, it's great to hear. We spoke with Lucy Safarova last week, and she pretty much sounded the same, that she was just loving retirement and feeling very at ease with it, which is great. Um, I saw a post the other day on Instagram from Robin Soderling, who uh, used to be a, a French Open finalist, among among other things, and uh, he mentioned the the stress that his career took on him and the emotional challenges that players have to deal with that often we don't realize because we've never been through it, uh, many of us in the media and tennis fans as well. H how much was the pressure for you, especially given you had so much success at such a young age? Uh, how difficult is it to navigate that aspect of things that maybe players, uh, sorry, um, fans and and media don't don't realize? Yeah, as you said, I think it is very stressful, especially at the beginning when you are super young, and all you really come to do in the tournaments to to play tennis, just like you were thought, you know, at the backcourt somewhere in your a home club without any attention and maybe in a naive way that's how you go into those big tournaments and you just have no idea what's coming your way and there are so many things you have to learn quickly to understand how uh, how not take too seriously because you know at the end of the day you you know yourself whether you gave the best in the match or whether you didn't try or whether you're playing good or not so just being able to keep the distance from that, uh, trusting the right people, um, you know, behaving like you are not adult, even though you are 15, 16 years old. Years old. So I think it's just, um, it's hard to explain how all of that happens so quickly and suddenly your life changes from one second to another. Then you must not forget um, injuries. You know, one second you might be preparing for semifinals of a tournament, a few seconds later, something can happen and you are thinking of how you're going to 
do the rehab after surgery. So there is a constant, I would say, there is no stability in the life. And when, when I retired, I realized that, wow, it, it is really a bubble that we live in as a tennis players because you, you take those things normal, and now we the normal. That's not the normal way to, to live life. So you go like, wow, how did I go through all that? But at the same time, you have so much more appreciation for, at least in my case, for everything I've done and been through because the person I am today is because of all those things, even though sometimes they were extremely hard, especially mentally. And that bubble you speak of is really one that lasts 11, almost 12 months of the year too. There's almost no escape from it when you're, when you're playing in your career. Uh, your career was very lengthy, so you saw a lot of changes in terms of the players that you probably faced in your early days and the players you were facing towards the end of your career who were up and coming and, uh, and a little bit younger, of course, at that point in time. What were some changes in the women's game overall? How did the, the women's tour evolve from when you started your career to when it wrapped up in 2017? I mean, the fitness levels of these girls went from, you know, uh, it's not like before. Obviously, you know, when you look at Graf being the greatest athlete we ever had in the game, there's no doubt about that. So obviously there was a lot of athleticism, but it just became so much more powerful. Um, all the girls suddenly, everyone was working out like crazy. I remember at the beginning of my career, um, when I was going to Melbourne, I had so much confidence because I felt like nobody was physically working as hard as I was. And now when you look at the girls, all of them are doing <laughs> the work uh, where um, physically it just became a totally different sport. Uh, obviously, the rallies got so much shorter. So technically, um, everyone had to adjust to this new style, style of play. Uh, to me, I was missing a little bit that fineness of the game where it was more of a chess game and then it it became more of a okay who's got more power so it was really hard to get into the long rallies and have the time to to kind of navigate and think more about what's happening uh, so the play went from i don't know from zero to 20 in, in two three years with all the young girls being so much more powerful um, I can ask you a couple more questions before we wrap up here. And since we are a Canadian podcast, I have to ask you about memories in Canada, whether it was playing the Rogers Cup in Montreal or Toronto. Was there any particular year that stood out to you or just Canadian memories with the fans or the locations that, that stick out in your mind when you think about things over here? Well, first of all, let's say uh, uh, they are the folks I always stay with um, during Indian Wells um, are from Canada. So uh, I know so much about your country and have so much appreciation for, for, for you guys because I absolutely, I don't know what it is, but I, I love uh, being uh, with you guys because I, I don't know, it's just very, very similar way of the way here back where we are parts of the world so I've been always very close to 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 the Canadians even from the junior um, times and uh, yeah the memories of playing in Canada has been always great I think one of my first junior tournaments was in Canada as well and then obviously playing the Rogers Cup two matches come to my mind one actually I lost but it was one of the best matches earlier on in my career when I played against Jennifer Capriati I was 7-5-1 up or something like that, and I managed to lose, but it was, 
uh, unbelievable match. And then when I uh, when I lost to Martina Hingis in the semis, I believe one year. But again, it was an incredible match that I really enjoyed. So great way to spend summer summer week uh, either in Toronto or Montreal. And uh, yes, yeah, too, too bad we not, we'll be not seeing that this year. But hopefully um, soon there will be some tennis action as well. Yeah, we're definitely going to miss it in August and uh, look forward to 2021 getting back on track, as many tournaments certainly do. It's funny you mentioned Martina Hingis because my last memory of you at the Rogers Cup was when you played doubles with her a few years back. And um, That's right, yes. Here in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of ties into my last question, which is we have seen over the years some players come back to the tour, some in singles, I think of... Vera Zvonareva, uh, Tatiana Golovin is thinking about it, Kim Kleisters as well, hopefully. Uh, and then in doubles, Martina came back to, to play some doubles uh, in the, her later years there uh, as well. And, and Martina Navratilova also came back uh, when she was in her 40s or even 50s, I think, and had some success in doubles. Would you ever consider coming back and, and playing, even if it was just for the occasional doubles tournament, maybe? You know, like they say, never say never. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, I don't really see the point of that. Um, uh, also being realistic, you know, these girls these days play on a completely different level. And I know how much effort it would take from my to the, the work in. Not that I wouldn't enjoy it because I I still love working out and, uh, and being really active. And like I said, never say never. And... I, I love playing the legends and exhibitions and uh, sometimes occasionally, um, you know, playing some competitive matches, but coming really back for real, that's another story. And uh, Well, that's fair enough. Both. Listen, you have to promise <laughs> if you do ever come back, you have to play Montreal or Toronto, okay? That has to be on your schedule. Okay, yeah, I, I, I can promise that. Okay, good. And in the meantime, it seems like you're definitely busy enough. So we wish you continued success with your career after uh, playing tennis. And uh, we enjoy your commentating. I really love the podcast. So I can't wait to see who you have coming up next. And uh, from all your Canadian fans and listeners up here, thank you for taking the time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, sorry about the, <laughs> the time difference uh, delay, but I'm glad we made it and good luck with it. And uh, yeah, good luck with the Canadian tennis. You guys are doing awesome. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, I think, one of the very inspirational stories. So keep, keep doing whatever you're doing. And good luck with the podcast as well. Hope it goes well on the YouTube channel too. Fingers crossed. And uh, yeah, maybe the next time I'll talk to you about Canadian tennis on my that podcast. sounds good. I would be happy to do that anytime. Thanks, Daniela. All righty. There you have it, Mike's interview with former WTA player, four-time mixed doubles Grand Slam champion, and now podcast host as well, Daniela Hintukova. And uh, you're able to touch on that. And I, I haven't had a full opportunity yet to listen through her podcast, but uh, the Real DNA podcast, you, you look at some of the guests she had, and I wasn't surprised, I will say, because she's obviously very connected with both tours, but uh, Yvonne Lendl, Jim Courier, Tommy Haas, Chris Ever, like big, big time guests. I, I should brag that we did speak with Jim Courier, but uh, she's spoken with uh, clearly a lot of greats of the game, and she's still kind of early on in that realm as well. Yeah, I mean, imagine as a former player what you, what you can do, just call up almost anybody that you've had, uh, you know, a good rapport with over the years and, and kept in touch with on any level and be like, hey, I got a podcast, you want to come chat with me? Um, so good for her, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more great guests in the future. 
Um, seems like everybody's getting a tennis podcast almost these days. I feel like since we started or since I started with you back in 2018, there's been many more that have, that have popped up and, uh, I'm only joking. I can handle the, the competition or whatever you want to call it, but, uh, there are certainly a lot of options out there and podcasts with all sorts of different angles. And hers is obviously pretty cool to listen to a host that's got firsthand experience and who has some great guests that she's played against, played with, or, um, you know, on the ATP tour at the same time that she was playing on the WTA. So definitely one to check out. She seems very comfortable in what she's doing. And, and as she mentioned, just a, a really seamless transition into retirement for her. Yeah, and I found it interesting. Uh, you asked her like if she ever kind of had the itch to basically get the competitive juices flowing again, the itch uh, to compete, and uh, it, it doesn't seem to be there. She seems to be very kind of relaxed, at ease with her retirement, enjoying what she's doing now, um, and is one of these players who can obviously look back and 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 see what a great career she has and probably not really have any, any regrets whatsoever. And uh, interesting that we've now talked with a few of these players, Lucy Safarova, who might have an interest more so in getting back in the sport in some capacity, but Hantukova seems very comfortable with where she's at. Yeah. And imagine, right. These high performance athletes that have to retire in their early thirties, mid, even late thirties, that is so young, so soon to have to call it quits on your, your job, your day job, your, your main focus of what your life has been, especially considering these, uh, these athletes have all been playing since they were, you know, what, five, six years old, um, growing up on the tennis court, uh, teenagers on the tennis court, young adults on the tennis court. And then all of a sudden where, you know, at a point where most of us are probably just hitting our stride in our day jobs and careers and getting that promotion or, or getting comfortable or whatever the case may be, finding our niche. And they've got to call it quits and hang up their racket and find something else to do. And so I would imagine for many pros, it's probably not nearly as easy as Daniela makes it look. Uh, and credit to her for having so many outside involvements. And I think she kind of, you know, procured and developed those throughout the course of her career as well to set herself up for a, a smooth retirement. But you got to think that's not an, an easy feat for, for most players to know, what am I going to do next? And, and this has been the career and, and what's defined me as a person. For the majority of my life, I can't imagine what that would be like. Yeah, um, very, very well said. Like, how do you take a, a complete step back with you know all that you know? If uh, it's whatever sport it may be, not just tennis. You you look at it. I think any sport, basketball, hockey, baseball, all, all of it. Just uh, you've been immersed in that life, even for for most of these athletes since you're a very very young age at five and, and playing at a competitive level so yes finding I think value in your life and and not being bored and like what do I do now now that it's ended should I go back uh, can be a challenge for and a major adjustment for for a lot of people and it, it was nice actually that you touched on Robin Soderling who shared a, an Instagram post that uh, I, I never really knew the the ins and outs of what really happened with Robin Soderling, a, a player who did reach, you know, the highs of the game, getting inside the top five, the huge upset win over Nadal at the French Open, a final there. And he had a kind of a two-year span right around that sort of 2008-2009 area where he was an elite player. And then a couple of years later, he kind of fell off the map and we heard about different injuries, but for him to open up about the mental side of the sport and uh, how difficult it was for him 
to continue competing when his body wasn't allowing it, trying to push it. And then even still years after retirement, uh, struggling to kind of cope with those feelings uh, mentally. I, I think he was very, very wiped out. And we, we've seen that on the Canadian side, Rebecca Marino talking about her struggles with mental health and depression. Of course, she made a terrific comeback back to the sport after a five-year hiatus. But we really don't know what goes on, I think, with these these athletes all we see is uh just what's between the lines on the tennis court no you said it i mean you never know what someone is dealing with behind the scenes and it's in the nature of our job to be critical and to point things out with players in terms of their on-court performance or even their off-court behavior but you never know what's driving them what's motivating them and and what's going on behind the scenes because you know and we do the same in that position likely most of us you keep it to yourself right so um and Daniela went through tough times early in her career too, having so much success at such a young age. And the critics uh, were pretty fierce with her over the years too, in terms of body image and things like that. Things that, you know, I just couldn't imagine what it would be like to go through. And even someone like Robin Soderling, as you were talking about, he was having so much success, but behind the scenes still dealing with so much pressure and stress and uh, ultimately, you know, causing an early retirement and, and stop to his career that, certainly could have been been going on longer. So I think it just gives us all a, a good reason to sort of pause and, and just think twice before, you know, you send out that tweet or before you ask that question or before you jump to, you know, some sort of uh, insensitive and, and rushed reaction. Um, I mean, not to say that, that, you know, you can't ever be critical of someone, but you just never really fully know what is, is going on, unfortunately. And uh, kudos to those players, credit to them who are brave enough to come out and speak, whether it's during their career or, or after their careers, because uh, that can't be an easy thing to do uh, to do either. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a good point. And uh, we, we, you know, a lot of players in the past, they didn't deal with the social media aspect, which I think completely changes uh, things for a lot of athletes and a lot of young aspiring athletes who are still lower in the rankings, up and coming. And you can hear a lot of stories as well about sort of social media bullying from, from gamblers who lose money on a match and, and attack players online. So that's a whole other realm and probably a completely different conversation. But in that same field, I think of uh, what players deal with especially in in an individual sport like tennis uh, which is no like no other in terms I think of, of pressure that you can place on yourself uh, we should get to some positive news uh, Wimbledon championships we would have been watching uh, the final this past weekend unfortunately that is not the case however uh, just a wonderful gesture from the uh, all England tennis club as they've decided to distribute prize money from this calendar year 2020 to 620 different players, which is uh, just amazing to me. 25,000 pounds are going out uh, to 256 different singles players, uh, 12,500 pounds to qualifiers, 6,250 for 120 different doubles players, and then also prize money for those who have played in uh, wheelchair events. Um, so to me, I, I mean, this is such a great move uh, by Wimbledon. Uh, and also, if you think about it, some of these lower-ranked players – uh, a move like this, this amount of money could really sustain and, and help continue their careers. Those are the only ones that I'm thinking of, you know, when I heard that news announced. Uh, I mean, first of all, great job, Wimbledon. It's nice to see a slam that's doing the right things because certainly you could argue that Roland Garros and the U.S. Open had a few hiccups in the way that they've conducted business with the, the French Open just unilaterally deciding to move dates and the U.S. Open completely forgetting about their wheelchair participants as well. So I think Wimbledon's looking pretty good. Not only were they the ones who said, you know, we're going to sit it out this year, 
and make that decision, which I think in many ways is hard to argue against as you see professional sports trying to get back into the swing of things right now, which is not going to be an easy feat to accomplish safely. Um, so just, you know, them handling it that way, I think was really good. And then for those lower ranked players, as you were talking about, uh, the ones who would be in qualities, that's some big time money for them that's going to help sustain them and keep them training and, and allow them to hopefully come back in 2021 and not have to move off and take some other job or, or look elsewhere to, uh, to pursue their, their career away from tennis. Um, so, yeah, great news there. Uh, I mean, Wimbledon did get a lot of their money back, I believe, from their uh, insurance policy that they took out, that cancellation yes. insurance, which was obviously pretty good foresight. Whoever, you know, came up with that decision should definitely be getting a little raise if possible this year. But um, uh, I, I just miss it so much. Like, I don't know about you, but the last two weeks of all the tournaments so far, Wimbledon has been the one that to me has really stood out um, as, uh, as sort of leaving a gap there that, uh, that couldn't be replaced. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, most of my memories, childhood memories, especially of, of watching live tennis were really breakfast at Wimbledon. So not having that opportunity, uh, just doesn't quite feel the same. Um, I imagine if we do get the U.S. Open, it's not going to feel the same at all, but it will be Grand Slam tennis, and, and that is the hope, and we know there are calendars established now for the ATP and WTA. Before all that happens, we still have some live tennis happening, uh, the World Team Tennis event, and Jeannie Bouchard, when she did join us on Canada Day, July 1st, she was talking about uh, various match play events and exhibitions she was competing in, and Jeannie Bouchard is our lone Canadian competing at this World Team Tennis event, which got underway. Uh, today and she is competing on Team Smash. I know uh, Sloane Stevens is also uh, part of her squad and uh, nice little exhibition and and credit to the women's side who has done a fantastic job I think safely running these exhibitions. They deserve a lot of credit because we have not seen uh, that to the same degree on the men's side where obviously the Adria Tennis Tour being the one catastrophic disaster but uh, safely running these events and a significant match play for a lot of these young players. And having a great mix of players, too, when you look at some of the women that are playing in this event, it's, uh, you know, you've got former slam champions and singles and doubles, uh, slam finalists like Jeannie Bouchard, up-and-coming players, players, American players, obviously, that, right. uh, you know, people down there will be excited about and players that have been, been doing pretty well this year as well. And and so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's nothing right now other than these exhibition events to watch. And I think it's a great opportunity for them to capitalize and bring some fans in, obviously not in person, but fans watching online on television to get hooked on their events so that next summer, next year, when these events are potentially, I mean, not all of them, but some of them will be happening. World Team Tennis always is an annual event. Maybe people will say, oh yeah, you know what? That really got me through that stretch where there was no live tennis to watch. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go check it out this year in person, or I'm going to continue to watch it and support it online or, or on TV or whatever the case may be. So I think for those events, if they are continued in the future, I don't know about Patrick Muradoglu, if that, you know, UTS will continue in the future, although it wouldn't surprise me if he wanted to. But I think for them, they're just growing their audience right now. And it's, uh, it's a great time for them to be trying it out. And you just hope that everything goes smoothly. The players and everyone who is involved, who's on site, are, are going to stay healthy throughout this. And uh, the players seem, sure seem really happy to, to be there and, and being back on court. Yeah, yeah, you're certainly right. And yeah, I should mention it's it's not exclusively a women's event. There are men's players there as well, including a handful of Americans, Taylor Fritz, uh, Donald Young, the Bryan brothers also competing. And as you mentioned, some veterans in there as well. Kim Kleisters is playing, Sabine Lisicki, a name uh, that 
I, I certainly haven't seen in a while. She'll be competing too. Bethany Maddox-Sands, who we talked about with Lucy Safarova just on the last episode, their doubles partnership. Uh, she's been active actually during this time uh, playing a bunch of tennis. So something to kind of keep our eyes on before we get the official tour tennis matches. And uh, Jeannie Bouchard for her, I think she has uh, been playing well. And, and this match play, she's treating it really, really seriously. So this will be good for her as uh, she tries to determine her schedule when the tour does come back and, and build her ranking back up yeah she kind of has to as we've discussed uh you know well, we just had her on what two weeks ago not even and um absolutely she's gonna have to take this seriously because when they do start counting points and when the matches do uh you know when they are on the line for something more substantial she's a player that this is this is really going to be make or break it for her with her ranking outside the top 300 she's mm -hmm. got to get it back up there um and and no reason why she shouldn't be able to but you've got to have the right approach to make that happen. And there's, you know, there's been lots of players in the past that have seen their, their star power, you know, fall and slide, seen their rankings tumble. Yep. And the ones that are able to get back up there, they've got to be able to, okay, take that hit to their ego, realize they're going to have to go play some lower ranked events and, uh, and start slowly and grind their way back up. But from every conversation we've had with her, I've got every indication that that's exactly what she intends on doing. Yeah, uh, my, my case in point for a Canadian building, uh, their ranking back up is last season, Vashik Pospisil uh, coming out of that injury outside the top 200 and doing such a phenomenal job, obviously playing such incredible tennis down the stretch last year into this year. But you see how quickly he soared uh, back up the rankings, back inside the top 100, uh, a place he hadn't been in, in a, a few years. So uh, tremendous for him. Uh, I believe Jeannie Bouchard can do the same. I think she believes she can do the same. So, so we hope for that. Uh, before we go, we should mention we were talking about podcasts and new podcasts. And Tennis Canada has, has launched something now on the francophone side of things. Yeah, so officially they're going to be partnered with uh, the Coupe Rogers uh, tournament, which is based in Montreal. And that makes sense because the French-Canadian fans there are just absolute tennis fanatics. Mm -hmm. And so this new podcast is called Sur la Ligne, which in English means on the line. And it's going to be hosted by Alexandre Regimbald and Nicolas Richard, who are two uh, French journalists with uh, TVA in Quebec. And I spoke with Alex the other day. He's super pumped to get going. And... Uh, sort of uh, asking for a little bit of uh, advice on how you and I got started and how things have been. And uh, we might do a little home and away with them. Uh, they might make an appearance on Matchpoint Canada. We might go make an appearance on Show La Ling and uh, we'll see how, I don't know how, what, what language we end up speaking in, but uh, maybe a little, a little bit of both, a little uh, franglais, you know, as they say, but um, pretty excited that our, our French Canadian fans in the country do have uh, a tennis podcast that they can turn to and one that's hosted by a couple of, tennis nuts just like you and me it seems yeah yeah definitely uh definitely there is a market for it uh in quebec uh we know there's plenty of rabid tennis fans not just within montreal too uh all across that province and uh, a lot of french speakers uh throughout our country as well so we hope you tune into that podcast thanks as always for tuning into matchpoint canada remember hit us up on twitter on instagram and on youtube as well you can uh, like and subscribe we're on youtube as well matchpoint canada We'll talk to you next time.